You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Shane Claiborne is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. Shane worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Letter Christians, a movement of people who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. Claiborne is a champion for grace, which has led him to jail advocating for the homeless and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand up against war. Now, Grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and help stop gun violence. Claiborne's work has been published by nationally renowned publications and news outlets. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages and include his classic, The Irresistible Revolution, and his newest book, Beating Guns. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, we discuss gun violence and Americans' gun culture through the prism of the Christian call to be peacemakers. We also talk about how it is possible to be both outraged about injustice and strong in our hope. And we discuss what it means to live the Franciscan call to rebuild the church. Enjoy! Hi Shane, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Yeah, it's great to join you. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm a great fan of your work. You've really influenced a lot of people through your writing, your speaking, uh, your building up of the the simple way, founding that community in Philadelphia with your friends over 10 years ago now. What, 15 years ago? Oh man, Julie, Sister Julie, I'm older than that. I started... (laughs) We started our community uh, in 1995 is really when we started. So we've been over 20 years for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I know um, your roots are in Tennessee, but you really go all over the place, really advocating for justice and and, uh, using your gifts to build up the reign of God. How did you become the person you are today? You know, a, (laughs) a Christian, a writer, a speaker, a social justice advocate, uh, someone who's proclaiming God's reign and in beautiful and provocative ways. Well, I I grew up in the Bible Belt and you know the evangelical church down in East Tennessee. My folks are from the hills, literally. I, at my mom's house, I've got a picture of Dolly Parton uh, that says "To Shane, Love Dolly" on my Aww. desk, and next to it, I got my little. Someone was commenting on it's it, it, how funny my desk was because I got a picture of Mother Teresa there too. She signed a little thing for me when I worked with her. So mm-hmm. um, Dolly and Mother Teresa, those are the women that helped shape me. <laughs> but <laughs> I I, I uh, fell in love with Jesus, you know, in the Bible mm-hmm. Belt, and um, and 
I, I started to see some of the contradictions I'm sure we'll talk about today, you know, especially in the evangelical church, because I grew up with this fusion of God and country and, you know, the gun in one hand, the cross in the other, mm. and you know, the, the flag on the altar. And so all that stuff, you know, I started to deconstruct some of that, I think, but I mm -hmm. always loved Jesus. And, and, and in fact, it, it is Jesus um, that has caused me to have uh, some problems with uh, the, <laughs> the evangelical Christianity I grew up with. So I'm, I'm kind of a fusion now, you know, I've been shaped by a lot of Catholics. I've been, I, I got very involved in the charismatic movement because I wanted to be around people who believed in miracles and mm -hmm. live like God is still active in the world. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those traditions, there's just some gems and treasures. And there's, I think almost all of our church traditions have some bones that we got to spit out too. So, you know, I, I think that that all is um, really shaped me. So I wanted to get outside of East Tennessee a little bit. I, I love, I love it down there. Growing up an only child, an only grandchild, it was a small family. So I just wanted to get out and I ended up in Philly because I went to Eastern University, which is right outside of the city. Mm. And, um, and one of the things I loved about Eastern was that I studied sociology with a, a person who's, I think, just an incredible sociologist, Tony Campolo. Uh, he's now a dear friend of mine. But um, I, I like how Karl Barth said, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to hold the newspaper in the other, you know, so that our Bible doesn't, our, our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in, but our faith <laughs> yeah. should actually fuel us to want to change the world. So that's, you know, and then when I was in undergrad is when our community started, really, because we met a group of homeless families. Uh, these were mostly mothers and children mm -hmm. that were living in. They were sort of squatting out an abandoned old Catholic church building. Mm -hmm. And um, sadly, the Catholic church was kicking them out of this abandoned building. And they hung a banner on the front of it that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? <laughs> so that, that, that was really my sort of second conversion. And it's also mm. that where, where my community started out of that. Mm, yeah. And you tell that story so well in the irresistible revolution, which uh, I think is probably one of your most popular books. Uh, I'm, I'm just guessing. Was that your first book? That was my first book. Yeah. yeah. And I went back, uh, that we just did a 10 year anniversary edition, which was someone else's idea, but I went back and uh, 10 years later wrote notes in the margins and oh. things I might've said differently and, you know, completed some of the stories that we were in the middle of. So I ended up getting married in that old abandoned cathedral. And mm. um, uh, we, we just went back there to remember the 25th anniversary of the takeover of that building uh, just this year. So yeah, wow. it's a special place. And then I, I live not far from there now in a little community that's not unlike the Catholic worker communities for those that might be familiar. In fact, Dorothy Day and Peter Marr and others are real inspirations for us. And so was the early church, you know, in the book of Acts where they shared everything in common. And, you know, uh, that, that vision for the early church is part of what inspired us to start the simple way as well. Mm. So we've got a, what started as an intentional community is now a little bit of a village. We've got a, a dozen or more properties on the same block, community gardens, murals and all, even in the pandemic, all kinds of stuff that we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, I was able to actually visit the simple way about five years ago. I came and uh, 
had a, I think, a lovely afternoon with uh, Taz, I believe, is the, is Taz, that right? yeah. oh, Kaz, uh, Kaz, yeah, yeah. Right. and she just, you know, showed me around, and uh, I was so impressed with your gardens and all the beauty, the murals and, you know, the artwork and the ways that you're beautifying the, the neighbor neighborhood. What is it? Uh, Kings, Kingston? King? Kensington. Kensington. Yeah, Kensington. Okay. yeah, yeah you've got a good memory, though. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people in Philadelphia area, um, they don't think very highly of Kensington. It's often referred to as the Badlands. But I, we always say, uh, that that's exactly what they said of Nazareth, right? Is nothing, <laughs> nothing good comes from there. So we, uh, we that know Jesus know better, you know? And so we, we know that God shows up, uh, especially on the margins. So I, I love it. It's a place I've, I've been proud to call home for, you know, the last couple of decades. Mm, and, uh, yeah. You know, we talk about resurrection uh, at the simple way we say, it's not just a one-off event 2000 years ago. I mean, what Jesus did on the cross is the pinnacle of history, but that, that, that resurrection is something that we live in light of every day. Mm -hmm. So we practice resurrection. We know that dead people can come back to life, that ugly things can be made beautiful. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like to think of the everyday resurrections. And e even right now, we just got five more abandoned houses. Uh, we've got a, like 30,000 abandoned houses in our neighborhood. So we've, we've been fixing those up. So now we, we're creating affordable housing and literally kind of building a little village one house at a time. Oh, that's such a great project. Yeah. It makes me think of, you know, actually St. Francis of Assisi and uh, how he heard uh, the the cross speak to him in in Assisi when, during at the early start of his conversion, where uh, you know Jesus spoke to him from the cross and said, "Francis, rebuild my church, which is falling into ruins." And if the church is the people on the margins, the people of of God in all these little abandoned places, then isn't it natural that by to be really rebuilding the church is to be constructing more beautiful, safe places for people to build community, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and obviously, we, we feel a very kindred spirit to that Franciscan movement of Claire and Francesco and Assisi, you know, that, that because we, we started in an abandoned, you know, church <laughs> building. But it, ironically, it, it really is that in that abandoned church that our vision, you know, for the church sort of came and, um, and, and boy, yes, yeah, so I've got Francis here on my desk. You know, I've, I've had an incredible, I don't know if you've had a chance to go to Assisi, but I I've have, really, yeah. really been shaped by by being able to, you know, go up to San Damiano and, uh, mm. you know, go climb Mount Sebastio and all that. Yeah. So it just really shaped who we are. So um, that's a good connection. And it's one that I make often. I'm, I'm very inspired. And it was a youth movement, you know, that, right. that it was a very youthful movement in Assisi that both had a love for the church, but also a holy discontentment. Yeah, yeah. And the time of Francis and Claire is so similar to our time in that there was this extreme polarization. There was a lot of divisiveness. Like the church wasn't doing such a good job at actually building the kingdom. They kind of had lost a little, got a little misguided there. And so, you know, it's, it's just in our time, as well as in that time, God rises up, you know, raises up prophetic voices to, to remind us like this, this is, remember what Jesus said here? He meant it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hey, and speaking of you, um, or, or Jesus, meaning what he says, I know one of the other movements you're involved in is the red letter Christians movement. Right. And which, yeah. yeah you want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, interestingly enough, the name came from 
someone that was really didn't seem to have too much to do with Christianity. He was actually a secular uh, country music DJ. Um, and he was interviewing a friend of mine. And he said, you know, I've read a lot of the Bible. This is the DJ. So I've read a lot of the Bible and there's parts of it that I love. There's also parts of it that I find kind of confusing, you know, and, and he said, but I've always liked the stuff in red, you know, very innocently kind of talking about the, you know, the gospels that often have the words of Jesus in red. And he said, you all seem to like the red stuff. You should call yourselves red letter Christians. And that, mm. that kind of stuck, you know, because we realize, as, you know, Gandhi said so well, he was asked about Christianity and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. I find myself think, saying the same thing about the church too. <laughs> here, yeah. I, I mean, here we are, both of us have given our whole lives on over to it, but don't, it is, it's a little bit tricky sometimes. I don't know. I feel like it's like a sickness sometimes. It's like it can, a cancer a entitlement can seep into us and we take yeah. on the ways of the world and we forget like, if we just keep our eyes on Jesus, like the good old song says, <laughs> then we'll yeah. be on the right path, right? That's right. You look at church history too. It's nothing brand new. And I think you made a great connection that during the uh, the era of the Franciscan renewal and, you know, the 1200s, um, the Christians had gotten confused. You know, they were, they were trying to uh, sanctify very unchristian things. They were sort of baptizing the crusades. They got su just suffocating in riches. And so you, we, we forget who we are. And so that constant reminder to mm. repair the church in ruins, rebuild the church in ruins. It, it was, I don't know if you ever seen Phyllis Tickle's work, but she was mm. a dear friend passed away. And she, you know, she often said every few hundred years, the church needs a rummage sale. <laughs> you know, we, we need a, we need to get rid of the clutter and we need to cling to the, you know, the real treasures of our faith. We need to uh, clear house a little bit, you know, and remember mm. who we are. And, and it's, I think, you know, every generation has its own type of reformation, I think that we need. So it's so wonderful to hear your heart and all of that. And I, I think that that's what we realized is that we do have a real spiritual crisis in America because there's a lot of things that are camouflaging themselves as Christian, but mm -hmm. they don't look very Christ-like, you know, and that's what Christian in the end means is Christ-like. Yeah. And for Francis and Claire, that's what happened to them is they read the gospels with this sort of childlike innocence and said, what if Jesus really meant it? You know, sell what we have and give it to the poor. Love our enemies. And, and it's that, that innocence that I think we hope to come to the scriptures with today. Um, I think it was Mark Twain, wasn't it, that said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Jesus meant what he said. You know, actually, an earlier form of Messy Jesus business, uh, there was a header on the top of our on the blog, on the webpage that said, Jesus wasn't kidding, <laughs> which yeah, is, you know, oftentimes good. what I really want to remind people of when we think about the um, the, you know, the true message of like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and how blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, that's, that's really who we're supposed to be. We're not meant to be warriors, but we're getting this in our, in our society. There's such a celebration of, of war heroes, militarism, you know, and, and violence, such a glorification of violence. And, but yet we're called to be peacemakers, which is, hmm, makes a lot of logical sense, makes a lot of heart sense. But for some reason it feels um, 
controversial. There's so many things that are, you know, lovable about our country and we're celebrating, but there's also so many things. I mean, even imagining our country without guns. I, mm. I just wrote a book on guns, you know, and um, I mean, this country is almost unthinkable. How <laughs> you got it there? Unthinkable without our guns. You know, how do you take land from other people? How do you subjugate entire people that you've, you know, uh, enslaved? And so that's the sort of historic backdrop. And 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 I don't think that that has to hold us hostage, but mm. it surely we've got to be truthful about that. Um, and I think a lot of the growing pains that we feel in our country right now are about how we memorialize that history. You know, do we put up statues to the folks that were on the wrong side of, you know, racial justice or, or what? And, and, um, but boy, violence is one of those demons that goes back to our very foundations in our country. And even now, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, one of his lines that is not usually the one that gets put on the monuments, right? But he said uh, that, that America is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Hmm. Um, and those, those are powerful words. But we think, you know, in, in our Beating Guns book, one of the things that we recognize is that we, we have 5% of the world's population in the U.S., but we have almost half of the world's guns. We have more guns than people mm -hmm. in the U.S., mm -hmm. and we're producing guns at, you know, one gun every three seconds. Mm. So, you, you know, that call, bless are the peacemakers. And then there's the big guns, you know, the nuclear weapons out of all the countries in the world, only nine of like 196 countries have nuclear weapons. And we own almost half of them as one country, bombs that are 50 times the Hiroshima bomb, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and so you start to think, what does it mean to be a peacemaker in the midst of one of the most armed, highly armed and um, countries with the most violence too? I mean, the most gun deaths. Uh, so I, I think we, we, we really have to wrestle with those things. What, what would Jesus, the Prince of Peace, uh, <laughs> be saying right now, right? So, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to lament about, lots to repent for, and I think it invites us to some some real imagination about how we can reconstruct our society and yeah. um, not fall into these old traps. You know, and yeah, I have been reading Beating Guns, love it, not too far yet, just got the library like two days ago, but... <laughs> I really like that you got it from the library, that's wonderful, yeah. <laughs> Franciscan budget. <laughs> Um, anyway, there's this line in here in the introduction that I think kind of fits with what we're talking about. You write, uh, we don't want to grow numb, but it's hard to stay heartbroken and outraged when so many lives are lost each day. My weariness grew one mass shooting at a time, one tragedy in our neighborhood at a time. So that, and then you go on to talk about the, what weariness means. So that the thing though that I'm interested in is how how do you live in the tension of outrage and heartbroken or in other words uh how how do you like remain joyful and hopeful as as i know you to be even when there's so much that's uh just painful you know and there's so much that you can grieve and and still remain a leader for so many so many other Christians who are kind of confused and lost. Yeah. So I th there's a, there's a lot of really depth in your question. And, and the first thing I think is that what I found to be true is that 
um, one of our starting points has to be proximity to the pain. And, and I'm convinced that one of the, the real tragedies in our church is not a compassion problem, but it's a relationship problem. It's a proximity problem that many of us are insulated and isolated and live many degrees of separation from the pain. And so the entire story of Jesus, I always come back to Jesus, you know, the entire story of Jesus is a God who's leaning into the pain, you know, a God who leaves all the comfort of heaven to join the struggle here on earth and, you know, is born not just into anybody, uh, any physical body, but is born into a brown skin, Palestinian, Jewish, refugee um, body, you know. Occupied. And, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> In an empire. Ex mm -hmm. Executed on the cross. So like God is, 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 is uh, you know, entering into that pain, even to the point that Jesus is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So mm -hmm. I think there's, it's, it's okay to fill the, the heaviness and the loneliness. But I also think mm -hmm. that we know the end of this story. Mm -hmm. And we know that love triumphs over uh, hatred, that life conquers death, the tomb is empty, you know, so we know that God is restoring the world. And, and so when we, what we do with that anger and grief is very important, you know, but if we don't have it, if we're not close enough to the pain, we don't have the right emotions, right? Mm -hmm. We're not, our hearts are not broken as they should be with the things that break the heart of God. So I think that's why proximity is important. But then what you say is so important too, that we, we need to keep that hope alive. We, we, um, we have this prophetic hope, you know, as Walter Brueggemann says so powerfully, and we kind of, uh, we, we nod to that in our Beating Guns book, is that the, we misunderstand the prophets sometimes. And we think that the prophets were um, just trying to predict the future. But they were actually trying to change the future by naming the present, right? By waking us up, by shaking us. So they weren't just um, fortune tellers. They were truth tellers. And they were inviting us to a new imagination about, you know, don't accept the world as it is, but dream of the world as it could be. And I think that's exactly what the reign of God is about. What, what does it mean to bring the, uh, you know, the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray? So, you know, like the one of the, scriptures that inspires us is uh, Micah and Isaiah, who both give this vision of beating swords into plowshares, right? And spears into pruning hooks of literally transforming the metal that's designed to kill into metal that's de designed to cultivate and protect life. So that's what inspires a lot of our beating guns. We're literally outside my window here. I've got my blacksmithing uh, equipment, you know, our forge and anvil mm. and everything. And we're taking donated guns around the country and we're mm -hmm. transforming them, them into shovels and uh, plows and, and garden tools. But it's not only symbolic. This is what I've learned, yeah. Sister Julia, is that it is sacramental. It's mm. very holy. As we look at a, you know, sometimes these are AR-15s, right, that are donated to us. And we, in the period of one hour, can turn that into a garden tool. But it's also what we're doing with the grief and the anger. Mm. I, I'll never forget one of uh, the these that we did was with um, uh, Reverend Sharon Risher, who's now a dear friend. But um, her mother and her family were killed in the uh, Emanuel AME church shooting in Charleston, right? So mm -hmm. uh, when this white supremacist young man, radicalized, filled with hatred, went in and killed them during worship, right? Her mother was killed, her two cousins were killed, her childhood friend was killed. And as she took the hammer 
she began to name all nine of those lives that were mm. lost. And as she's beating on that gun, she's just weeping. And she said mm. to me afterwards, she said, something happened in me. She's mm. like, it was healing my heart. And, mm. and Reverend Sharon said, everything that I wanted to do to Dylan Roof, the shooter, I took it out on that gun. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I get chills, you know, every time I think about it, but mm. that, I mean, we've, we've done that all over our country. We've had mm -hmm. people that have killed folks that have mm -hmm. taken the hammer and transformed this weapon. So, you know, mm. people that have survived unimaginable things. So mm. I think what we've got to do is find constructive things that we can do with that pain, that anger, and it mm -hmm. validates it. When we do these public demonstrations, melting guns, that's what it does. It, it honors that grief, but it also channels it into a, a different future you know so I, mm. I always say what we're doing in one sense it is a protest but mm. it's also protestifying right yeah. we're proclaiming how it can be different and that the idea that a, a piece of metal can be changed reminds us that so can our world wow. our, this doesn't need to be normal a hundred lives lost every day to guns in america and so can a heart be changed right mm. a person can go i mean the whole scripture points us to that moses killed someone saul you know david they were all murderers and yet the grace of god gets the last word so mm. a, 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 even a hardened heart can be mm. softened by the grace of god amen that's biblical too <laughs> What yeah. is that, Ezekiel? I, uh, I love the way you're describing how you're beating guns, your blacksmithing ministry of, you know, transforming weapons into tools is, is uh, really what I'm hearing is a form of prayer. It's liturgical. I love that you said it's yeah. sacramental. And so um, I'm wondering if that's what you're saying is, is really what keeps you going along is that the acts that you're doing, you know, your creativity, your proclaiming, um, your relationship building are all acts of prayer. Absolutely. I think they are. And that's why like our vigils and protests our marches in the streets, even the times that we've done civil disobedience and we've mm -hmm. gone to jail kind of challenging the bad laws um, have all been in that sense of reverence and, and, um, we call it the holy mischief, you know, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. the, as John, John Lewis called it the good trouble, but right. you're that's kind of that that prophetic imagination, as Walter Brueggemann says, is, is that that's what we're inviting people into, and and um, yeah. uh, and it, that's it, all in love, isn't it? It's I mean, you're, it's helpful. rooted it in the love. the love of Jesus. That's it goes all the way back to because Jesus said so. Yeah. That's right. It's exactly right. And yeah. uh, I, you know, I think that that love is what compels us. Loving our neighbor, I've come to really realize that you know, we're, we're better at charity than we are at justice sometimes. Mm. And I, I mean, heavens, we, we give out hundreds and hundreds of bags of food. We, you know, have uh, try to welcome people that are homeless. We do all of that, like hospitable, charitable work, but there also comes a point, I think where Dr. King helps us with this, where he says, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch on the road to Jericho. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. <laughs> we've also got to do the work of justice. We've got to interrupt the patterns that keep landing people in the ditch yeah. uh, to begin with. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. So it's a lot of hard, hard work. You remain faithful to it, even though it could go 
in a lot of different directions. And actually, I just want to comment too, um, that one of the things I admire is that you are able to actually go to the places that I find the most terrifying. <laughs> I'm actually, here's a funny little story about me. When I was a teenager, you know, you do in the public school I was going to in Iowa, we had to do this like in military aptitude test or something. And, and by this time, you know, even though I wasn't a sister yet, obviously I was totally in love with Jesus and I just really wanted to be a good Christian girl. I mean, that was like who I was. And so, you know, reading the Bible and I was convinced like evil uh, or violence was evil and I never wanted to be violent. I didn't, I wasn't interested in, in uh, militarism at all. Anyway, so the military recruiter called me up because I apparently did fine on the test. <laughs> And, and, uh, and I said, I would love to join if I can get all the benefits uh, and never touch a gun. <laughs> and they said, oh, we'll take you off our list. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Yeah, sure you know, yeah. and, and I mean, I never took a formal vow, like, like I've made my, my vows as a Franciscan sister to never touch a gun, but I made a vow in early, early on in my life to never touch a gun. And I have it, I have, I've lived up to that. Um, and, mm. and I, but yet you write in your book about how you were hunting, you know, and like, that's part of your cultural, you, you understand, like, even though I'm terrified of guns, I don't like them. You're, you're like, you know, it's part, there's something about guns and something about hunting. It's not like the guns are evil. We just have some, we got to work on this. <laughs> well, yeah, I, so I, I, I definitely like the guns better when they're turned into the garden tools. But oh, I, grew okay. up, I, I grew up really comfortable with guns, you know, and yeah. even here with my family, I'm in North Carolina right now with my sister, my, my, um, my wife's family and her sister and, the, and they're hunters, you know, they, mm. uh, so I'm very comfortable with the guns. And I, I think that's part of why I can have a good conversation with gun owners, because the, the problem is not the gun owners, it's, it's gun extremists and gun profiteers that mm. just have a really unreasonable, um, uncompromising ideology on some of this. You know, the, the fact is that like over 80% of gun owners want to see some changes uh, to prevent the loss of life that we see in our country. So I'm, you know, I'm hopeful about all of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, you know, it gives me a lot of grace to remember where I came from because I, on a lot of these issues, like the death penalty, gun violence, um, I believed the exact, you know, very differently than I do now. And so I, I you know, write about that in my book on the death penalty. I argued passionately for the death penalty and use verses from the Bible to justify that, you know. So, um, but then I, you know, it, it really was my love for Jesus that made these things really, really difficult to reconcile. No matter what, how I kind of did some theological gymnastics with scripture, Jesus always was a stumbling block, you know? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, it's really hard to hold the cross in one hand and a gun in the other. It, yeah. it becomes really difficult to worship Jesus uh, as an you know, victim of the death penalty who said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy and let, you know, the, let the one without sin cast the first mm. stone and then, you know, defend the death penalty. Mm. But that's what I found. And part of what, why I think a lot of people have given up on the church, sister Julia, is they see those contradictions. Yeah. And, um, you know, a few years ago, the Barna research group went to every uh, state in the U S and they asked young non-Christians, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? 
And then it was heartbreaking. The results of that study showed that the, what non-Christians said when they hear the word Christian, number one answer was anti-gay, anti-homosexual. Mm. Number two was judgmental. Mm. Number three was hypocritical. And the list doesn't get much better. And, and what didn't make the list, what broke my heart was that the thing that Jesus says, they will know you are Christians by love, right? Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't even register. So that's why I'm so grateful for you and so many others that want a Christianity that looks like Jesus again, you know, that want to change those perceptions by the way that we try to live out a different version mm -hmm. of faith, right? Yeah. Um, and it's not just an evangelical problem. We sometimes pick on the evangelicals, but right now, you know, federal executions have resumed uh, from, and it's right. William Barr. It's it, in many states like Texas, it's a Catholic governor or Catholic Supreme Court justice that continues to defend some of these policies and show us, you know, how um, narrow our thinking has become when it comes to be pro-life, right? Mm -hmm. That it's um, often we would be more accurate to say we're anti-abortion than pro-life because we're mm -hmm. really only thinking about one issue rather than, you know, militarism and gun violence and the death penalty and racial justice and mm -hmm. immigration and the environment. I mean, all of these, I think, have yeah. come to to be about what I mean by pro-life. And, mm. and that's why, you know, the Catholics, uh, uh, Pope Francis and the, um, you know, the, the seamless garment, the consistent life ethics, so much of that is there. So we just got to keep holding on to that and to the champions like St. Francis. I mean, he was very consistent in his ethic of life. Mm. Amen. Yes. Let's promote the true culture of life uh, by being radical peacemakers and proclaiming the reign. Amen. Uh, Amen. So tell me, brother, I'm in, in the midst of all this. Uh, what are you learning about what discipleship is? Well, so discipleship to me, I mean, it, it, it is about um, not just believing, right? Because I, I found that the church was very good at teaching me what to believe but not as good at translating that into a lifestyle changes and commitment into a whole life Christianity. So I think the things that we believe are really important, but in the end, um, Jesus isn't just inviting us to agree to a set of doctrines on paper. Jesus is inviting us into a revolution, you know, a transformed life. And, and uh, so I, I think that uh, discipleship is about reproducing Christians who look like Jesus. That, mm. That's what it means is Christ-like, right? So we want to leave, as Mother Teresa said, we want to uh, raise up disciples that leave off the fragrance of Jesus. Mm. They smell like Jesus. They love like Jesus. They, uh, 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 so that, that's what we really want to do is have folks that live like Jesus in the world. And that's why I think it's also interesting that the word disciple um, shares the same root as discipline. So it doesn't just happen. I mean, you, you don't get uh, you don't get fit physically by watching a bunch of aerobics on TV. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you actually have to exercise your muscles. And I think we need holy habits. You know, mm. we need um, things that mm. discipline ourselves so that nonviolence is what comes out of us when the worst kind of hostilities are provoked in us. Right. When. Um, and we need so that the fruits of the spirit become embedded in us uh, mm -hmm. so that that doesn't just happen. So I think we have to exercise that. And it's why community is so important, too, is I, I often say community is about surrounding ourselves uh, with people who remind us of Jesus. 
and also remind us of who we want to be, you know, so they rub off on us. So like creating a critical mass of folks who love like Jesus and smell like Jesus with their lives, you know, that, that helps us along the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I I think that we are in a discipleship crisis because we've kind of focused on the beliefs so much and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and our faith is not just a way of believing, but a way of living. And it's Mm. not just taught. It has to be caught, right? (laughs) Um, One of my mentors said that, that the, the gospel spreads best, not through force, but through fascination. Mm. And I think the tragedy is that much of our Christianity has become less and less fascinating to the world. Like, and that's what we want to live, right? We want Mm -hmm. our, our best sermon to be our life. We want to live in a way that, um, as Jesus said, you know, people mm-hmm. see our good works and they praise our father in heaven. So we want to live in a way that um, moves people closer to God. And, and Christians haven't always done that. I mean, I, I'm convinced that for some people, the biggest obstacle to Christ has been Christians who have a lot to say with our mouths, but very little to show with our lives. Mm, yeah. So we got to live it. We got to love it. it. <laughs> it takes discipline. <laughs> it's work. Yeah. It makes me think about the importance of faithfulness. We keep showing up, even though this is going to probably prayer might be a little dry today or this, this house meeting, when we talk about who's not sweeping the floor is going to just be um, a pain, <laughs> you know? Yeah. but we'll get, I mean that, but that's ultimately all these little things like um, what is it? Mother Teresa says about the the little do small little thing acts of love right and, yep, and the, small things with great love yeah there you go thank you i'm not so good with the quotes like you <laughs> it's uh, impressive and uh in my community uh we a few years back our assembly we said that we're we're having a revolution of goodness i think oh, a lot good. of what of your a lot of what you're talking about is the same sort of thing it's like we're creating this movement we're making the good and magnifying you know magnifying it in a way that where the good is going to always win out because it is I mean you know but like making that more apparent by uplifting the good and celebrating it more and more I like that I like that yeah Dorothy Day talked about that too she talked about in Peter Morning they talked about we need to create an environment where it's easier to be good easier yeah I think that's what we're we're trying to do in our our communities but also in the world and some Mm -hmm. of those habits they don't they don't feel great all the time I mean I've been running I've been trying to run six miles sister Julia and I get out there and like at first (laughs) I do I do not feel great doing it but then the more I do it the more I feel myself breathe better. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, prayers kind of like that eating healthy is kind of like mm-hmm. that, but some of those, you know, spiritual um, practices that have proven themselves over the centuries are really important for us to, to do. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that. And I, you know, I think in the, the Catholic tradition too, the saints uh, become so important too, because they help us they, they give us a glimpse of God, you know, I, I think <laughs> yeah. it was Frederick Beekner that said, uh, all a saint is, is when God drops a handkerchief from heaven to leave the scent of heaven on earth, right? Mm-hmm. So we see these people, they remind us of Jesus, they remind mm-hmm. us of God, and they mm-hmm. also remind us that we're not alone, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we can we can live this out, and, mm-hmm. and so uh, that it's a, it's a beautiful thing to have that yeah, cloud, I- cloud of witnesses. Amen. Cloud of witnesses. I think too, the saints are like the all-star team, you know, we're all on the team, <laughs> but they're like, I don't know much about sports, but somehow I was just thinking like their player cards are <laughs> the high, <laughs> the best versions anyway. So Shane, what, what is messy about all this for you? 
the thing that becomes tricky is is that we are all figuring this thing out you know the scripture mm. says we're see through a glass dimly or uh, you know that that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling and i came to realize that i think a lot of christians need, like kind of feel like they need to have everything together mm-hmm. um but i i've really come to find this to be true is that an onlooking world is not looking for christians that are perfect they're looking for Christians that are honest. And that's the problem is we haven't always been honest. In fact, we've been quite dishonest. I mean, you all do this better than some maybe with the, you know, the sacrament of confession. But a lot of the times we sort of act like we, um, the, the, the church is a country club for saints rather than, uh, you know, a hospital for, for sinners. And we, 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 you know, that's why my friend Tony Campolo, when people say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. He has a really great response. He says, no, it's not. We always have room for more. <laughs> so that that seems like a better posture. You know, I was preaching at a church uh, before the pandemic and they had shirts on. The, the, the greeters at the door of this church had shirts on that I thought were terrific. They said, no perfect people allowed. And uh, you think, wow, if that was greeting every person coming into every church, it gives you a sense that of, of reality, like that this this is a home for you, even if you don't have it all together. And the, the whole story is that we're a bunch of imperfect people that are falling deeper and deeper in love with a perfect God. And then we're all trying to help each other become more like that God, you know, and, and so that should give us grace. But, but it all begins, and I think the recovery community, AA and NA, like they have a lot to offer the church in this, that, that actually part of what gives us strength is not pretending that we have everything right, but being able to be honest with the things that we're struggling with. And so I think the church can learn a lot from that kind of posture, you know, and confession is a real part of that. Um, and realizing that in scripture, you know, there's these people that we are taught that they were saints, you know, like David. David was a womanizer. You know, I heard it in Sunday school, like a man after God's own heart. But like in two chapters of the Bible, he just rips through the Ten Commandments and breaks every one of them. You know, like he, he um, you know, he killed Uriah to cover up his, hmm. I think it's better just to call it rape than adultery. Yeah, or yeah. Bathsheba. And, and yet he, mm-hmm. he, you know, has this moment of, of reality where he repents and hears from the prophet, you know, from his friend Nathan about this and, you know, God speaks to him. So I think we've got a whole story of, uh, as you know, the, the great Henry Nowen said, we're wounded healers, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we've come to think of our wounds um, as things that we need to be ashamed of, but I think they're actually, if we're honest with them, they're not our liabilities. They're our credentials that we're <laughs> wounded healers, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's who we are in the world. And the more honest we can be with those doubts and imperfections mm-hmm. and struggles, the more that, you know, other people know that this, this gospel is good news, not for the righteous, but for the mm-hmm. sinner. Amen, brother. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there, there's a blessed, uh, sacramental nature in the, in our brokenness, which reminds me so much of the Eucharist and how we are all meant to be blessed, broken, and shared. And yeah. that is an act of community. We need a community for us all to be whole, for us all to be one, holy, and the instruments of God, God calls us to be, made us to be. That's right. 
Amen. Well, thank you so much, Shane, for this time. And thank you for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Absolutely. Let's do it again sometime. You keep it up, Sister Julia. And blessings to all your listeners. Uh, Keep in touch. I'm on social media for folks that want to follow. And you can find more at thesimpleway.org or redletterchristians.org. But I'm just glad to be on this adventure with you, Sister Julia. Thank you. Awesome. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Shane and I talked about the biblical call to transform weapons into tools for peacemaking, and he referenced the prophets Isaiah and Micah. Let us pray together for peace and healing as we meditate some on the words of scripture from the prophet Isaiah. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases stick out for you. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain and raised above the hills. All nations shall stream toward it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For from Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and set terms for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not raise the sword against another, nor shall they train for war again. House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's another episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh, with assistance from Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please do a few things? Share with your friends subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and leave us a review. Plus, I'd love it if you could support us on Patreon. Thanks! Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.